Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. everyone. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. As always, I am here with my brave and true co-host, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we're still doing Dune Month. This is further Dune content, sort of. So what we're going to do here is, and, and I will say off the bat, this was at first scheduled to be possibly a solo episode for Pete, but I said, I'll jump in so you can teach me about this because what we're going to discuss is Frank Herbert's non-Dune work. And I think the underlying thesis on Pizza End, so I haven't read this stuff, but on Pizza End, he has read it. I think I can say the thesis is that a lot of that work is not very good. So we're looking at like why all this, <laughs> this guy who wrote this great, enduring, best-selling sci-fi book ever, uh, what was his deal in his other work, um, and try to learn more about Frank Herbert outside of Dune. And I'll stop rambling. Uh, I, I just... I guess to kick this off, Pete, is there a passage in particular you want to start off by reading from one of the non-Dune works? Sure, sure. Uh, what I'm going to read now has the great virtue of being relatively short, uh, but it's bad. So I, if you have people who get bored very easily, I recommend you send them out of the room or have them cover their ears. <clears throat> Frafen glared at the image projected above his desk. It was Lutt, his master of craft, a broad-faced chem, steely-skinned, harsh and abrupt in his decisions, lacking subtlety. He combined all the best qualities for one who supervised the mechanical end of this work, but those very qualities interfered with his present assignment. He obviously equated subtlety with caution. A moment of silence served to acquaint Lutt with the director's displeasure. Frafen felt the contour pressures of his chair glanced at the silvery web of the panto-vive above the salon. Yes, Slut was like that instrument. He had to be activated correctly. Braffin ran a finger along his jaw and said, I did not tell you to spare the immune. You were directed to bring the female here at once. If I have erred, I have based myself, Lut said, but I acted on the basis of past directives concerning this immune. The way you gave this female to another, the way you... He was an amusing diversion, no more, Fraffin said. Colexel has asked us to examine a native, and he has mentioned this female specifically by name. She's to be brought here at once, unharmed. That proviso doesn't apply to any other native who tries to interfere or delay you in the execution of this order. Am I understood? Okay, I'm going to stop there. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> It is it is very hard to listen to the writings of Frank Herbert and not think bad 50s science fiction. Yeah, I mean, you know what that reminded me of? Uh, What's that? More than anything. Well, so I, you know, I haven't read as much trashy genre fiction as um, a lot of people have, as, as we know from my record on the show. What it reminded me of was actually, uh, I have looked at the Conan books. Um, Ooh. 
yeah, it, it had a lot of those vibes of like the sort of overbearing, you know, dramatic descriptions of people, the overt, uh, one might say misogyny. You can always voice it off on the characters, but you know, I mean, we know what we're dealing with here. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, this sort of like, it, yeah, it, it, it reminded me of some of the trashier genre fiction that I can remember taking a look at. I don't have anything insightful to say, but I'll ask you this. What is that from exactly? Sure. Uh, it's from a book called The Heaven Makers. Uh, the book came out two years after the first Dune book. So it's not like this was something that this wasn't earlier in his writing's journey before he had some sort of great inspiration. Like this is in the body of his best work. This thing popped out. And the idea behind the heaven makers is that there is an alien race observing humanity and sort of using us for television, emotionally uh, manipulating people to do like minor household dramas that people get into or on a larger scale, creating whole wars like World War II or the Vietnam War or even the French Revolution were all generated by these aliens for television. These aliens are similar to human beings and they are immortal and it turns out that they are genetically similar to human beings. So these tools they can use to manipulate people, uh, they also use to take sex lives. Okay. Well, all right. So there's a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I just love this idea. It, it fits into that classic and I'm, I'm not accusing Herbert of anything in particular here to be clear, but the, the, it seems like the kind of alternate history premise where you let the bad guys off the hook uh, in these, you know, cataclysmic events like the civil war, or in this case, world war two, it's like, well, you know, this was ginned up by aliens. Uh, I guess that lets uh, Nazi Germany and the Empire of Japan off the hook. Um, right. So that's, that's one thing I would say about it. And that's, you know, that's been a common move in sci-fi, uh, I think, you know, throughout the, the, the decades. But, like, what, uh, hmm, I don't know. There's so many directions we could go in this. Like, I, I would ask you, how much of Herbert's oeuvre have you read relative to how big it is? And also, is there anything that's non-Dune related in there that you liked at all? Sure. Sure. Uh, well, uh, I've I've read all of his non-Dune works. I believe I can pull up a number. Uh, wow. But it, wow. It's about <laughs> 20. Uh, yeah, the only thing I didn't read, I think, I'm trying to remember, I think it might have been called The Dragon in the Sea. Like, the first book he wrote was like sort of a submarine military story, and I've never been really interested in that. Um, one of the things I want to call out I'd like to read a quick passage from Herbert. And I, I know you're familiar with this stuff, stuff, Connor. When when somebody goes to an author and says, can you give me writing advice? Uh, many authors remark that it's an incredibly annoying thing for something someone to do to you. And a lot of them just sort of come up with a thing to say because it's very difficult. It's like distill your personal experience with how you create books into pithy advice that you can give people. Maybe that's not a possible thing. But uh, here's Herbert's. And he says, the single most important piece of advice I ever got was to concentrate on story. What is story? It's the quality that keeps the reader following the narrative. A good story makes interesting things happen to a character with whom the reader can identify. And it keeps them happening. So the character progresses and grows in stature. Now, I want you to think about 
what you've read about Herbert in relationship to that theory that he's talking that us, us, you should concentrate on story and story is about the development of that individual character. So thinking about Dune, it's very odd. He feels that way. And thinking about the heaven makers, which is basically, it's a, it's a conspiracy book about, about, uh, 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 sexual manipulation and slavery. Um, I, I think maybe people at the time might not characterize it as that, but you know, my rebuttal would be come on. Uh, I, I, it's it's just incredible to me that he's like the most important thing is stories, and then he like drops a turd like this. Well, I'm thinking through that statement. Uh, I, he's doing something that is quite common in discussing uh, the narrative arts, so to speak, and it's the drawing of distinctions. He said this that quote. He says it very explicitly. The drawing of distinctions between story, narrative, and I think implicitly plot. And in sure. some ways, these are these are often used as synonyms um, for good reason. They do they do mean things that resemble one another. But we tend to have a tendency to separate them out for our own purposes. And like you know, I I'm trying to read more deeply in sort of theorists, who, including writers, but anyone who's sort of theorized uh, how the narrative arts in the modern narrative arts, especially the novel is actually constructed. Like, what is the actual sort of, what is the theory of novel on the practitioners and in particular? And it's a relatively under-theorized topic because most theory tends to be more interpretive or contextual. Uh, you know, that's that's it's from the standpoint of critics who are participating in another set of dialogues entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to think about what Herbert said, you know, he, he draws a distinction like story is what gets you to follow the narrative. And like your, the reflexive thing would be to say, well, what's the difference between story and narrative? And I'm not sure what he meant exactly, but based on reading Dune, at least, um, you know, it seems like given how much how much um, of Dune is like, as, as you and Jacob Bacharach very smartly pointed out, it's like a late Renaissance, early modern uh, you know, like bad Elizabethan drama or a sort of like, you know, set in the, the intrigues of like Renaissance Italy because of there's constant twist and turns of betrayal. He doesn't, he has the violence and the battles in there, but they're not the core of what he's actually showing you. He's showing you these very devious, dramatic, uh, subtextually charged interactions between these characters. And there's, you know, uh, and, and he leavens them with comedy and all this stuff too, or tries to. Um, and I sort of see like the constant, one might say, twists and turns or reversals of fortune. And there is a theoretical name for reversals of fortune and the twists and turns in narrative, and it's called Peripatea. And I'm actually reading a book about, that's in large part about Peripatea right now, that being Frank Kermode's The Sense of an Ending. And one day I'll discuss that book at length on the show. It's very dense, but very worth reading if you're interested in narrative. And I've gone way off course here. I guess oh, what I'm saying fun. is that I think this does actually cast some light on how Herbert thinks about stories that you have to, you have to load it up with an immense amount of very overtly dramatic twists and turns. And he's hardly alone in genre writers in particular. And what, you know, what, what, what genre fiction gets condemned for often is being overly plotted, right? You have to have too many devices in your plot. You have to have too many reversals of fortune, too many moments of being menaced. The idea being that, that more literary fictions are more subtle somehow. And that's often, broadly true in many cases. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it gets overstated because if you look at the literary canon, there's, God, there's a lot of incredibly plotted stories in there and some that are less so, to be clear. But okay, before I get way, way off course, I guess what I'm saying is like, I get it. And one of the implications, of course, is Frank Herbert didn't care that much about prose 
uh, as such. He probably wrote pretty quickly, I'm guessing, and didn't get a lot of editing based on what I've seen. Oh, sure. There's so well, many things. Yeah. And who would dare? Like after F once Dune came out, like these these other books, I, I imagine it was very difficult for him to get useful feedback from people. Yeah, well, and and as we know, Dune was in an unusual publishing situation, and I I would guess I have a pet theory that I can't prove, but that you know if Dune had been published by a more established, even a purely sci-fi publisher, I'll bet that he would have had some of those like italicized moments of characters explaining their inner motivations and stuff. <laughs> that you don't, I'll bet a lot. I bet that book would have shed thousands of words from what we currently have, yeah. um, and would have looked a little bit different and a little bit more. It would have been a little bit harder to make fun of it, but yeah. You know, well, it's I mean, I this is something I think about because like when the two books I have, The Heaven Makers, which I've already attacked a little bit, and the other one is called The Green Brain, which is a bench a basically humanity has decided to start using insecticides to wipe out all insect life. And so the world is divided between green zones and red zones. And the green zones are the safe places for humans where there are no bugs. And the red zones are areas where insect life is fighting this pitched battle with humanity to keep them back. And it turns out that there's a guiding intelligence behind insect life, basically. So, like, both of these books are filled with things that, it, it's, they're pretty easy to attack. Like, uh, you know, I, I think we'd have discovered an intelligent species already were that going down. And like the the heaven makers thing, the the genetically similar alien species thing. But if you throw that stuff aside, um, his larger points seem to be things worth talking about. Like I think I think the the vision which made a dune is still here. That like attempts to exterminate insect life and what the biological consequences of that. That is that is a relevant discussion. That's an important discussion because, like dolts, we've been doing that all over the place. Um, the uh, all of the different uh, uh, genetically modified crops that we have that release insecticides, like there are consequences for that sort of thing, and it's not a discussion being had very much in science fiction. At least he was trying to have it, albeit in a very uh, juvenile way i mean it wasn't being had almost at all in 1965 when dune came out yeah um i will say i guess i just looked this up rachel carson's silent spring which is in large part about insecticides and killing insects and is in many ways considered the text that launched the environment the mainstream environmental movement did come out in 62 so a couple years before dune but the point was as uh other people have said to us like his herbert's interest in ecology, his implicit and sometimes explicit environmentalism is was both cutting edge at the time. It's probably the aspect of his work that's aged the best. And yes. so, I mean, I think after discussing this book at great length with a number of different people and with you, I feel comfortable saying that his investment in ecology, his interest in the environment, his curiosity about the natural world and his willingness to think about it through narratives that are pointed and often carry, you know, a, a pretty clear moral message. That's it, it, that's probably the single best thing about Herbert as a writer and about his career and about Dune specifically. That's that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, yeah. I mean, it's it's it, it's relevant to the discussion we've been having all along about like the like the nature of good writing and you know genre fiction versus literature that sort of thing. I. When I look at Dune, 
I see a book that was basically captured lightning in a bottle. Like the 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 whole what he ended up making was a lot better than the individual pieces he used to make it. And reading his other stuff, like this is this is a very intelligent guy. This is someone with a range of interests and he can talk you know, coherently about astronomy, he can talk about genetics, he can talk about the environment, and he can weave it into a story that is worth reading. But the end result that we get from Dune and, like, a couple of the books in Dune is just so much better than anything he ever produced. The Beyond that, I really don't know what to say. Because, like, the implications of that sort of scare me when I'm thinking about, like, a writer's journey and that sort of thing. Can it be that random that you just have a series of things line up and you produce this good book and that's it for you? Like, are there one-hit wonder writers like there are musicians? Oh, first of all, absolutely, yes. And I can cite some good examples. I mean, Harper Lee only finished the one novel uh, in her lifetime, To Kill a Mockingbird. It's considered one of the core classics of the American canon. And I, there are many more examples. And I would actually zoom out. And I think if you zoom out enough, the whole one-hit-wonder concept starts to fade. Because what, what one realizes is that if you are a novelist who produces anything at all, any single work that is read after your death, and I mean even a few years after your death, uh, when you're no longer around to promote it and you're you're not you're no longer a mover and shaker in the literary world. Uh, if anyone's reading your work after you're dead, anything at all, that's a huge triumph. That's really all you can ask for as a novelist. And that's unusual. You know, I, I look at like one of my favorite writers, Kazuo Ishiguro, he's written several novels. I, I think that it seems pretty clear at this point he might come out with uh, new work that will attain this status, but probably he produced two novels that have a chance to be read long after his death. Uh, one we discussed in the show was Never Let Me Go. The other one, of course, is The Remains of the Day. And I think Ishiguro, who has won the Nobel Prize, by the way, which is so he's been a sort of livingly in, uh, in his lifetime enshrined in the canon institutionally. I mean, I doubt his other work has many virtues, but it's really those two that have a shot to be read long after his death. And, you know, based on the way that literary history works, it's very possible that almost no one other than academics will be reading either of those 100 years after his death. If anyone's reading your work 100 years after you're dead, you really, <laughs> you're in rare, rare territory, whether your work was considered schlock at the time or not. And I mean, for instance, a book we consider a classic of its time that was absolutely considered schlock when it came out, Dracula. And Dracula oh, sure. has, yeah, Dracula's endured it. By the way, I think Dracula is actually a pretty good example of how to write a tight, propulsive plot to this day. Different topic. But I mean, I, I would say don't worry too much about the one hit wonder thing is my main point. OK, well, um, because this is a more relaxed episode, uh, can we can we go to the Dracula place for a second? Because I don't know if you know this. When I was researching for my last podcast, the one I never launched, I was exploring the relationship between authors and alcohol. And there's a weird one right there. What is so, it? So, uh, like, there was a very strange version of the temperance movement happening all around where where uh, Bram Stoker was writing Dracula. And what it was is people want to go to bars to have fun, but it's bad to have alcohol. So what can we give them to make this happen? And what became very popularized in the area was liquid ether. 
Oh my god. <laughs> and so what the the chances are very good, but though there's nothing specific out there proving it, is that when Bram Stoker took a took a work break and went out to drink with his buddies, what he drank was liquid ether, which would basically make you uh burp for about two minutes straight and fall over. I mean it's uh, wow. <laughs> in order to prevent people from doing that, this these days they add chemicals to to it to the so that it was unpalatable, but it was absolutely the temperance movement was like, well, what if we gave people drugs instead at that time? And I'm so fascinated by that. That's great. That's a great detail. I didn't know that. I mean, if you consider the stuff that uh, like Victorian Edwardian novelists were imbibing from opium to cocaine to ether, like it's it gets <laughs> wild. Alcohol was least of their problems. Great, great point there, Pete. Yeah. Um, and I would love to know more. Do we know much about Herbert's record with drugs? Because he wasn't a hippie. But he was definitely oh. hanging out in some funny circles. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have, I have looked, but not with any great depth. And my, my understanding is that he didn't, he didn't do anything too racy. But like, what do I know? Um, the thing is, he was obviously interested in the concept of drugs, right? Via the spice. Yeah. Hmm. I'm well. actually. Uh, here. Okay, everything I see out here are people saying, well, obviously he had to have. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it's obvious. I mean, look, I I think that's underrating how imagination works. And I I will give Herbert this. Guy had a powerful imagination. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the things, like, when when I said I wanted to do this episode to talk about a couple of his books and sort of make clear the – the gaps in his writing, I feel sort of bad because like at the end of the day, the man has produced some great books. And the fact that he produced some that were like awful doesn't detract from that. I mean, in some ways it isn't important except as a historical note or, or if we're exploring what makes a good writer, a good writer, you know what I mean? It's, it's not, um, nobody should really care that Frank Herbert put some books out that weren't particularly great. Oh, no, without question. I'm totally with you on that. Um, again, if if the measure of writers is going to be uh, their worst published work, then almost no one's going to escape unscathed. Uh, that's so that there's no. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's interesting. It's like you said, I mean, it, there is something uncanny about doom. We keep coming back to that word. Every episode we sort of mentioned there's some there's some mystery here as to all that how all this came together in a way that has had this enduring appeal. And I'm not particularly interested in answering that question. I think it's it's fine to sort of leave the mystery intact. Um, yeah. But, you know, by looking at the other work, we can clearly see that uh, this is not, you know, he wasn't a talent. He wasn't a literary talent on the level of Le Guin or Butler or even people that I would put a little bit lower, like Gibson. Please, if you hear this, William Gibson, don't get mad at me. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, um, or, Neil, or Steve, Neil Stevenson. So, yeah. I was going to say, get so mad that you want to come on here and talk to us about it. That would be yeah. okay. <laughs> Uh, William Gibson, come on a show and defend yourself, you coward. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, like, it, there's there's no reason to impugn. I, I feel like we get a little bit hard on Frank Herbert. I think the thing that I'm hardest on him about is just the gender politics. But, like, that is hardly – he's hardly alone in that. So, I, you know, whatever. Uh, well, I mean, like, I think I think about my dad in his uh, – oh, God, his, his 20s at the time this was going on. And I know, like – his gender politics weren't very good until the world changed, and he's sort of my model for what a good man was at the time. So it's it's kind of hard for me to be too negative. Like, 
why didn't you figure out what the world didn't know? Oh, yeah. And that that is a great way of summarizing uh, the problem with going back and uh, canceling the canon. Um, it's yeah. well, one of the funniest things about canceling the canon is that the entire canon already got canceled like 30 years ago in academic debates. Like we've been over this. So, you know, it's just history repeating itself. Uh, and it's very boring. But, you know, I mean, at the same time, it's it's always valuable. It's valuable to like have a have a sort of critique for yourself about Herbert's gender politics. So you don't end up talking yourself into like this had good gender politics. No, it didn't. And that's OK. I think that's ultimately that's yeah. OK. That shouldn't stop people from reading it. But I think it's just it's just good to have the information and have the awareness and have the critical capacity. And I think that's the you know, that that is that is to draw the distinction between having knowledge handed down to you in the form of stone tablets, which by the way, this podcast is not a series of stone tablets. No. <laughs> it is not. It's a series of audio files that we record with minimal preparation. Don't tell anyone. Uh, <laughs> but it, you know, so it's like, it's the difference between the received wisdom for, on the stone tablet versus having the ability to form a critique, which means that people, other people can help you learn how to form critiques or learn how critiques might might take shape, but it's not that we're telling you how to feel about this. I just think for my critical purposes, like, yeah, I mean, we can say that he had that Herbert struggled with gender politics because the textual evidence there is pretty strong. We're not just nitpicking. Uh, it, it Anyway, I'll stop rambling. I want to ask you, Pete, are there any other passages you want to read to us? Yes. Yes. Um, we haven't read anything from the green brain yet. And let le- men, let me the make green clear. brain. Oh, I know, man. <laughs> Can't you just feel it? Um, one of the things that's interesting about it is that there is a real awareness here that, like, in areas, uh, it, it, it was clear in his mind that you needed insects to have crops, which really will, I've talked to my dad about it, and that wasn't necessarily something everyone was very clear on back when this book came out. Like, sure. To be clear, your dad's a, your dad's a, uh, accomplished PhD agronomist, right? Yes. Right. Right. So like, like certainly he knew that you needed it, but also like that wasn't, that wasn't generally understood. Everyone would have been really happy had all the insects gone away. So here we go. And this is from the perspective of the green brain. Um, the dancing pattern of insects on the cave ceiling appeared as a lovely thing to the brain. It admired the interplay of color and motion while it read the pattern message. Report from the listeners in the savannah. Acknowledge. The brain signaled for the dance to proceed. Three humans prepare to flee in the small vehicle, dance the insects. The vehicle will not fly. They will try and escape by floating away on the river. What shall we do? The brain paused to assess data. The trapped humans had been under observation 12 days. They'd provided much information about their reactions under stress. The information expanded data obtained from captives under more direct control. Ways to immobilize and kill humans became more obvious daily. But the problem wasn't how to kill them. It was how to communicate with them in the absence of fear or stress on either side. Some of the humans, like the old one with the grand manner, made offers and suggestions and appeared to display reason. But could they be trusted? That was the key question. The brain felt a desperate need for observational data on humans under conditions it could control, uh, that control being noticed. Uh, discovery of the listening posts in the green had aroused a frenzy of human activity. They used new sonotoxic, deepened their barriers, renewed their attacks on the red with poisons. I'm going to stop there because, <laughs> dude, it's a, it's unbearable. Well, I, yeah, I mean, so what I'm getting from that, and this is about, I, I take it the green brain is the... Uh, 
the in- super intelligence of the insects, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Think of it as the queen of the mass hive of insect life. Right. Well, what I got from that passage is that I, I just felt like he was rushing through it and throwing in too much information. Now, like, we can make fun of the conceit being silly. I think <laughs> there probably would be a way to do the conceit that was less silly because, like, especially – you wouldn't call it the green brain. That's just cheesy. But like, sure. Um, lots of such things got changed. But like, I, that just had a feel of like rushing in through, cramming in too much information, uh, asking us to accept too much as we move through this this weird premise. And yeah, it just. Um, and I think that's actually an example of like the counterexample being Dune, where especially in the first book, they preserve so many mysteries, and he's not like, despite having this at times overbearing, omniscient narration, Herbert isn't jumping to like. Here's the mind of the sandworm. You know, he gets he gets into that later, um, right? Arguably to hit the d- diminishment of the Dune books, but in the first one he does a good job. It, it comes back to that mystery. He what he's able to do in Dune was despite having to be the first installment in this big epic uh, of his, he was able to retain various mysteries and keep the suspense and the tension going. And what you just read to me is an example of like I'm just going to lay all my cards on the table as fast as possible, and yeah, that that is usually a big mistake for a writer. Got it. So I'd like to play a game really quickly here. Uh, I don't know how much you've been online recently, uh, Connor, but um, I found the Biblio.com passage on Frank Herbert, and I'd like to read two paragraphs of it uh, to you and let you spot the error. Are you ready? Go for it. Okay. So Frank uh, Frank Patrick Herbert, 1920 to February 11th, 1986, was an American science fiction author. As an author, Herbert was both critically acclaimed and a worldwide commercial success. He's best known for his novel, The Godmakers, and he was born in 1920 in Tacoma, Washington. He's best known for his novel, The What? (laughs) (laughs) The Godmakers. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't know what's going on there. I will say that The Godmakers is four unrelated short stories of his that he stitched together to publish a novel, a technique I know you are not a huge fan of. I am deeply not a fan of that. That's hilarious. <laughs> I wonder if that's just a troll or someone who loves the Godmakers, and is there really a difference? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, it's... I, I imagine that if you're doing a little article like this about every author on Earth, like, you're, you're going to have some pretty bizarre errors, but, like, that's just embarrassing. Like... Whoever whoever's writing this stuff should at least have a passing interest in science fiction. Just saying. Right. That's that's just silly. I mean, you know, I, I don't know that I have a ton more to say. I feel like the thing with Herbert, I will always enjoy Dune. And I think it's yeah. very easy to discuss the flaws of it. But um, there is something deeply cool. And I think like so I think that at a sort of moral and political level, the ecology, as we've discussed, is the thing that's aged best. I think just at a, at a sort of literary and aesthetic level, um, there are so many cool things that he came up with. I mean, people have had a really fun time just visualizing and imagining his world for decades now. And I think that's been a huge, fruitful part of what he did. Imagining the still suits, imagining the sandworms, imagining what the Sadarkar looked like, imagining all the different imperial crests and all what the weaponry and the costumes and like he gives you so much food for your imagination in a way that is reminiscent of Tolkien uh, and George R. R. Martin and the other really great epic science fiction and fantasy writers. And, you know, I think he's way up there at the top, right up there with Tolkien as far as like how he's sort of fed the imaginations of others, which is really one of the highest things that a storyteller can do. So that's another big compliment I want to give Frank Herbert. I I think that's absolutely true. Uh, One thing we haven't talked about uh, 
if you if you are a fan of Frank Herbert and you've read the Doom books and you want something else, um, I can recommend one. Count him. One other of his books, and it's called the Dasadi Experience. Ex- excuse me. Let me try that again. The Dasadi Experiment, and it is basically um, it's written a, a few years after Dune. He was obviously trying to play on the same scale, and he do- did some experiments which did not work. Like it's not as good a book as Dune, but it is. Um, it's it's a very interesting attempt, and you might enjoy it. Cool. Well, that's a good wreck. Uh, anything else you want to say before we hit the log off button? Uh, no, I, I think we're pretty good to go here. Uh, I think Dune Month is going really well. I think one of the things we should commit to anytime we have a themed month is to break the rules in the middle and drop something else in there. Yes, and I think we are doing that this month coming up. This episode might come out after we do that. I'm not sure what our release schedule is, but hey, everyone, uh, we're doing our best here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, I'll before we log off, I'll say one more time. Thanks for everyone who's been listening to Dune Month. Thanks for everyone who's told us that they're enjoying it. And thanks especially to those of you who became patrons or have remained patrons and are supporting us in this. That means everything to us. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, everyone. Yep. Take care, guys. Take care.